Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled The Gonzo Decline of Hunter S. Thompson and Jose Mourinho. Now Hunter S. Thompson is one of my, my favourite writers of all time. And I suppose at first glance it appears quite an esoteric title. And even an esoteric concept. But I think in particular it comes down to one major moment in Hunter S. Thompson's career. And he was basically a major sort of contributor to Rolling Stone magazine in the early 70s. And he gets given this kind of dream assignment. You know, he's to go, fly out to Kinshasa in 1974 for the Rumble in the Jungle fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Now, Hunter S. Thompson was born in Louisville, you know, really loves Muhammad Ali, who was also, you know, grew up and born in Louisville. And it's just this sort of epochal moment. You have, you know, these two brilliant fighters, you know, in this, you know, completely exotic, different location. You know, it's not a, you know, a fight in Madison Square Garden. It's not a fight in Las Vegas or even L.A. It's Kinshasa, you know, in Zaire, you know, there's, there's celebrity, there's just so much going on. And, you know, who wouldn't want to have been a part of that moment in history? So he goes out there to cover this fight, and it goes horribly wrong. He doesn't produce the article he's supposed to, and in some, in many ways you can basically say that, that was the turning point. So up until that moment, he'd had fantastic success with the Hell's Angel book, He'd had Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you know, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72, several other brilliant articles. And from that point onwards, it's the sort of gentle decline phase sets in on, on his writing career. And for me, it, it really does serve as a prism to understand some of Jose Mourinho's decline. You know, it's... If you look at it, it's themes and motifs. If you look at Ali, if you look at Hunter S. Thompson, there's, there's lots of similarities with, you know, Jose's career. So if you, if you start, take Ali. I mean, he had unprecedented success. He was a cultural icon. You know, he had unimaginable international fame. You know, it was really iconhood in your own lifetime. You know, th- it was the nature of that success. There was brashness, there was arrogance, there was confidence. And it was codependent with his intelligence, his nerve. You know, he's very quotable. And there's the demands of that success. You know, there is the the dark side, there's the controversies. It is an absolutely enormous life. You know, the you know, losing the heavyweight title because he was banned because he refused to, you know, be conscripted into the US Army. And the fact that he went from being, you know, a sports hero to being sort of vilified by large parts of America that then sort of returned back to love and that he then became this, you know, you have the... There's just so much, you know, deciding to, you know, convert to Islam, the nation of Islam, going from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. You know, throwing his gold medal into the river, you know, in the you know late fifties, and a lot of that 
and even sort of kind of towards the end of his career, when he took on fight after fight, long after you know, he'd taken massive amounts of punishment in his career, and how many people really consider that, that you know, his later health problems were sort of related to not being able to give up. And there's so much of it that is really you know, comparable with Jose. Jose has had some unprecedented success. You know, two, European champ- you know, two European Cups, two UEFA Cups. You know, league titles, multiple league titles in England, multiple league titles in Italy, league titles in Spain. You know, there's so much that he's done. You know, winning cups. You know, he's everywhere he's gone. At some point, you've won. You know, you've won with Porto in the you know both European competitions. So you know, it's not out of this world to have imagined Porto winning a you know UEFA Cup, but to win the Champions League. And then when you sort of compare Hunter S. Thompson and Jose, you know, it's they both have humble beginnings to meteoric, you know, again, unimaginable success. The point was is that Jose did, you know, a degree that was really leading into the idea of him becoming a teacher. You know, he originally started, you know, his first break in football was being translated for Bobby Robson at Porto. You know, that is not you know, and having had virtually no professional career, that is not a starting point to winning, you know, becoming a professional football manager, let alone a professional top-level footballing manager. You know, Portugal at that point you know, in the 90s you know, was not a central you know, footballing nation. You, know, you, you had Italy, Germany, UK, France... Holland, you know, many other countries, you know, Spain, you know, Portugal wasn't the starting point. They hadn't had a huge amount of success really since, you know, the mid-60s, you know, with Eusebio. And to then not only become a manager, to then have this success, but it's all across, you know, Europe, at all of the biggest clubs. Much in the same way that if you told Hunter S. Thompson when he was sitting there at a, you know, in the US military, you know, being the, you know, sports editor on the you know the army newspaper you know doing the sports you wouldn't have imagined if you told him you were going to sell millions of books there will be films made about your life documentaries you know your books will be you know still in print you know long after you've died you will be interviewing presidents you know it, you know, you could say that you've fundamentally altered journalism and that you're writing, that the drawings that come from your work, you know, define an era. You know, birthing your own school and style of journalism, you know, which has been endlessly imitated. You know, in film, in radio, in newspapers, in books. You just wouldn't have imagined for those two people at that moment that they were going to have that level of success. And, and I think the problem, you know, with Ali to a lesser extent, but for... Thompson and for Jose, they become trapped by the myth of their success. They become subsumed into it. I think that the, probably the most classic example is the um, Gary Chidoro Doonesbury comic. And it has a character called Uncle Duke, which is basically based on Hunter S. Thompson's life. Yeah. And it's this idea of this, you know, drunken drugged up writer, you know, doing all of these crazy antics. And in a way, it became very difficult once you have had that level of celebrity. You know, in the end, the Gonzo Hunter S. Thompson of you know, you know, 
on his fortified compound in Colorado, you know, surrounded by wild animals, handguns and bottles of wild turkey, completely dominated the idea of this person that actually originally, you know, was a veteran who was a writer who travelled all across Latin America, you know, who had a wife and a kid. It just the fame completely took over, much in the same way that similar things happened to Jose. He has been so famous. You know, one of probably the most you know, famous people of this century. You'd, you'd be somewhere in the top ten. You can't have been Real Madrid, Real Madrid Chelsea, Inter Milan. You'd have been on all the billboards. You know, Massive in Asia, massive in Africa, massive in America. You know, just the, the totality of it. Every you know, When you say Mourinho, everyone knows exactly what that means. As a result, you do lose something of yourself. You're not just Jose, who was originally, you know, born in Portugal, who grew up in a fairly, you know, calm life, you know, with his, I think his dad was a ex-pro football player. It's, it's unimaginable, in a way, for the average person. So, to, why is, you know, Kinshasa 74, why is this failure of Hunter S. Thompson, you know, why is that similar to what happened in Madrid you know, I, I've put it, why Kinshasa 74 is to Hunter S. Thompson what Madrid is to Jose. Because really, I've given you a bit of background, but the point is is that the magazine and its editor, Jan Wenner, I suppose at this point you've had so much success You know, the with the 72 election, with you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. All of these brilliant articles that, you know, probably the if I was going to recommend one book that you were going to buy of Hunter S. Thompson's, um, The Great Shark Hunt, which is basically a anthology of all of his best journalism. So it's an amazing book. And so really, you can understand what their principle was behind sending him out there to Kinshasa. You know, it seemed to be the next logical national assignment. You know, you can then... You know, it, it will be something amazing. You've got so much going on. Why wouldn't he be... You know, he's at the peak of his writing skills. So, I suppose the question is, is well, why did it fail? And I think at the heart of it, you know, gonzo journalism and Thompson, it was really... It relied on the, the mundanity of the events he was covering. So, he's, you know... The Hell's Angel book, one of his first major published book, what you have with that is the Hell's Angels sort of burst into public consciousness in in around the mid sixties. And you know, out of all the, there were several sort of biker gangs all floating around California, but they were the main ones. And really it was a sort of the book comes from an article he wrote for a magazine and it just sort of carried on. So he's basically spent a year pretty much living in and around the Hells Angels. So he would go to the bars, he would go on their runs, but for the most part in that year nothing much happens. These are you know basically marginally employed people for whom the have being a member of the Hells Angel trumps everything. You know, in other words, you you don't have a, a major job because really at any point if you want, you'd want to basically chuck in your job, get on your bike, and then go for a run with your you know, fellow bikers. 
so there's only a couple of handful of you know major incidents. So before they go on July fourth for Independence Day weekend, they go up to a tiny sort of beach location up in California. There's a sort of tent standoff with the locals. You know, there's lots of sheriffs, there's lots of you know local businessmen and and, and heavies who basically want to duff up the city boys because they're under fear that they're about to be essentially overrun by a you know mob of angry city bikers. And yet the public are also, whenever the bikers go into town to get beer, because they're kind of on this little lake, on this little patch of grass a bit further up the hill. But when they go into town, all of these people, all of the squares immediately just go, wow, and take photos, whereby all of the businessmen really want you know, the Hells Angels to be castigated. In fact, they're fantastic for business and for you know, tourism in that regard. You know, if you take a look at the you know 1972 election, it was not a hugely controversial election. 1960 between Nixon and Kennedy, where the differences in the popular vote was about 119,000 votes in favour of Kennedy. You know, in 68 on the campaign, you'd had the assassination of Robert Kennedy. You know, the lead candidate for the, the Democrats get shot in by Sirhan Sirhan in the kitchen of an L.A. hotel. You, you have Martin Luther King then gets assassinated. You, know, you have the political rebirth of Richard Nixon. But in 72, not, it's not as... It's not as exciting. Yeah, there, there is, you know, at, at times it looks as if... Um, Hunter's preferred candidate, George McGovern, might possibly, you know, it might go down to the convention to choose the, who's going to be the Democrats' candidate, but it doesn't happen. He you know, eventually relatively easily beats Hubert Humphrey. You do have the you know, attempted assassination of George Wallace, but that's, again, halfway through the book. You know, the election itself, you know, it's an absolute landslide in favour of Nixon, who was the incumbent. You know, McGovern only wins Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. So in terms of considering that we've just gone through sort of several months worth of you know, electoral college machinations regarding Biden and Trump, the idea of literally, you know, McGovern effectively having, you know, 30 or 40 electoral college votes in total just seems completely bizarre. But where that brilliance comes from is really the analysis. You know, most you know, sort of political journalists, even even in today's world, you know, you're looking to do it for an extended period of time. You're building up contacts. You know, there's a sense of you're playing by the sort of the rules, you know, that govern the relationship between journalists and politicians. Joe on and off the record, bits and pieces like that. But really, Hunter S. Thompson's only doing this for you know a year, 18 months. He doesn't care about that. That you know, that you know, the objectivity, the rules that you're supposed you know, the unspoken rules. He's just like, well, I'm going to go there and I'm going to tell it exactly as it is. And as a result, that kind of critical editorializing and analysis and his personality, the recklessness it does reveal a deeper truth about America. You know, if you take Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you know, it's really based around two different events. It's the Mint 500 bike race that's just held outside Las Vegas by the, you know, a 
rich businessman who loves motorbikes, and you have the National DA's conference on drugs. You know, either of those events aren't particularly massively newsworthy, but if you take that and then you add the element of gonzo journalism, of subjectivity, of becoming part of the story, you then can. You, I mean, I... I generally tend in this podcast not to really use huge amounts of, of quotations, but I'm, I'm kind of aware that not every single listener is going to have you know, read or really even come across Hunter S. Thompson particularly much. So there is one you know, sort of quote, it's called The Wave Speech, it's from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I'm going to sort of read it verbatim, just to get, I think, a sense of his idea about the, you know, the death of the American dream. You know, as much of a patriot as he was, how he saw the you know, late sixties and the early seventies as being this very sort of transient time where you had the sort of decline of the nineteen sixties free love and hippies, and then the kind of the 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 re rise of Nixon. You then had Vietnam. You had Watergate. You had such a vis kind of visceral change and these kind of major events that really shook what people's viewpoints of America, where you first had a kind of a major split between sort of Metro America and Retro America. You know, the idea that you anti-war protests, you know, draft dodging, the idea that the president was actually capable of, you know, committing crimes and wrongdoing and, and how you would deal with that. So, so this is the wave speech. Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas five years later. Six. It seems like a lifetime, or at least a main era. The kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be part of. Maybe it meant something. Maybe not. In the long run. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there. And alive in that corner in the world. Whatever it meant. History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit. But even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then, the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time, and which never explain, in retrospect, what actually happened. My central memory of that time seems to hang on one of five or maybe forty nights or very early mornings when I left the film half crazy, and instead of going home, aimed a big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour, wearing an L.L. Bean shorts and a butte sheep herder's jacket, booming through the Treasure Island tunnels at the lights of Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, not quite sure which turn off to take when I got to the other end, always stalling at the toll gate too twisted to find neutral while I fumbled for change but being absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was. No doubt at all about that. There was madness in any direction at any hour. If not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate, or down the 101 to Los Altos, or La Honda. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, and that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. 
we were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can sit, go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. And I think that's a really deep thing that he had. I think one of my favourite, and I think one of his most urgent pieces, when he runs for sheriff of Aspen, Colorado, in an election, in a local election, and he basically is coming up against the local establishment. And the idea is that the sheriff is this um, pretty standard law enforcement officer, you know, very much law and order focused, and he's really a, a tool of the the elites of the local area. He's not going to challenge that kind of power that they have. And so Hunter S. Thompson decides to run as the freak party candidate. And his views are basically that, you know, if you let these greed heads, as he calls them, take you know, have control of the city, you're going to lose the aspects that Aspen had. It would just become a tourist trap. There would be huge amounts of environmental damage. And really, it wouldn't be to the benefits of the local population. Because really, in almost in some ways at that time, there's almost two Aspens. You had some of the older, mem- you know, the older members. You, know, you had the hotels, you had the businesses. But then you had a whole cross-section of young people who basically, you know, from various parts of the US, ended up congregating in Aspen. Hippies, freaks, dropouts. And he basically said, well, there's more you know, freak power votes than there are you know, existing voters. And if we mobilise them, if we say, you know, talking about radical ideas, such as, you know, effectively, you know, not use, having the war on drugs, not arresting people for, you know, using, you know, smoking pot. And he nearly wins the election. He shaves off all of his hair so that, you know, when he's having a debate that he can refer to, you know, his opponent as his long-haired opponent. You know, it's that kind of urgency and need to try and shake things up and to change things that can turn this minor, you know, local election into something that had sort of national implications. And so when we then go back to Kinshasa in 1974 in some ways the problem is is that it's the event itself is almost too gonzo it's a heavyweight title fight in a stadium in Kinshasa in Africa that was set up by a British businessman with the dictator of Zaire at the time Maboto President Maboto there's millions of dollars riding on this. You have all of the most famous, you know, singers from America come across. You have James Brown's there. You have Norman Mailers there. You have the cream of the sporting news from all of the, you know, all of the world. The English-speaking, Europe. Everyone is congregating in Kinshasa for this moment. You know, the fight gets postponed because... George Foreman picks up a cut, so it goes on for weeks longer than it was expected to. You know, everyone considers George Foreman the overwhelming favourite. The sense is that Ali, who hasn't, is only just returned to fighting after his ban due to, you know, refusing to be drafted, 
is past his best, that he won't be able to survive this because George Foreman had been destroying his, you know, his opponents in the, his previous you know, five, six fights. And there was a sense he hadn't even gone past two rounds that, that Ali could be seriously hurt. You know, he was a massive underdog. So the point is everyone is aware of just how important this is. You know, and you know, the elements, you know, I'll go into this a bit later, and the cultural elements to it. So, in a way, he couldn't really add anything more to it. You know, getting drunk and doing something, you know, reckless, well, that doesn't really change the fact that, you, you know, someone even as big a personality as Hunter S. Thompson it is only going to be a, a tiny element of this kind of, you know, very much, I almost describe it as allegorical, this biblical feel to this story. And so... In the end, he ends up remaining at the hotel. Doesn't even go to the fight. The point is, even if you were struggling with writer's block, you would just think, well, I'll go to the, the fight. You know, Maybe I'll get some inspiration. It would be such an amazing fight that I'll be able to come back to the hotel and crank out you know, however many thousand words that he needed to write about this. You know, much in the same way that you know, he's, you know, the, the beginning of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is him getting an assignment from Sports Detention to cover the Mint 500, but it's supposed to be a 1,500-word article. It's supposed to be just who, what, why, when, how. It's not supposed to be... And he then delivers this 20,000-word sort of screed, you know, talking about the American Dream and all, you know, all of these different events that don't actually seem to be who won what race. And it gets, you know, it's been described as aggressively rejected. And then he turns it into this book. And yet, so it fails. And in some ways, I would argue this, that the, because it was so gonzo, because the actual thing was such a, you know, almost a once-in-a-lifetime kind of event, I think it almost deadened the, the wider context and narrative towards it. You know, in other words, what what does it really say about America or the world? I mean, the point is, is that the Western world, in terms of its celebrities, in terms of its radio, TV, journalists, they all sort of decamp to Africa for entertainment purposes. You know, it, it's a sort of post-colonial exoticism and also, to an extent, eroticism. There's the famous film about the rumble in the jungle, When We Were Kings. And it really covers all of the sort of build-up and the fight itself. And there was, you know, Maboto was really using it, almost in some ways, almost like the first kind of hint of sports washing. The idea that he could basically show to the world, you know, this modern stadium, this fantastic, you know, pre-fight concerts and everything else this kind of new post-colonial Africa and this is one moment where he, and it's kind of very unexpected but it's not a major part of the documentary but it's just some sort of archive footage of this um, performer and she's singing and it's you know there's lots of background dancers and the production values are really high and then sort of just halfway through the song she just sort of very casually sort of undoes her top and just throws it away and just started dancing and singing topless and it's just Powerful and shocking because you, you, you see nudity. You, you might see it, you know, in terms of you know, a sex scene, in terms of... You know, there's so many different moments where there is nudity for some reason or other. 
but you never really see it during a live music performance. It's just, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen on top of the pops. It doesn't happen when you go to gigs. And it's just that kind of shocking element to it. And I think if you look at it in terms of sort of post-colonialism, it's almost sort of comparable to, you know, Emmanuel, the French erotic film that was brought out in 1974, same year as The Fight. And it basically just captures, just in an instance, what would happen is that Africa and Asia are the, the theatrical backdrops to these Westerners that basically, they, they sort of rock up in these areas and it's not colonialism, but there's just an element to it. It's the idea is that your interactions with the locals is by choice. It's the colours, it's the sights, it's the sound, it's the experiences. But it's from the comfort of Western quality lodging. So you're in the five-star hotel in town, which is just the same as if you were in a five-star hotel in Rome, a five-star hotel in Paris, a five-star hotel in London, a five-star hotel in New York. It's... You see Africa, you see the Africa you want to see. So if you want to argue that it was independent, it was self-confident, it was wealthy enough to pay for this you know, massive fight, to pay you know, Foreman 3 million, Ali 3 million, and all the other bits and pieces, you know, the stadium, and that you have these fantastic local performances, you can say, well, it was a black cultural triumph. And it, and it was. It was two you know, black fighters you know, fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world to a global audience. And yet at the same time... 